0: So for numbers, I think it's just basically obedience versus disobedience. It's just that simple, obedience versus disobedience. And you can look at each chapter and say, hey, did they obey God this chapter or did they disobey God this chapter? And very quickly, we'll see the fruit of the people that obeyed God this chapter and disobeyed God this chapter. I'm sure none of you recognize that feeling of your childhood, right? Did I obey mom and dad this week or did I disobey mom and dad this week? And the consequences, the fruit of that week oftentimes would uh, sort of go with that, right? Uh, If you were able to go out during the weekend, sort of had to do with that. At least that was my life. But um you guys are all saints. So, uh, outline for numbers again Israel's obedience to the Lord, chapters 1 through 10, Israel's disobedience to the Lord, chapters 11 through 25, and then from 26 through 36, we see the second generation of Israel and how they renew their obedience to and their following of the Lord. In chapter 11, we saw how the people were complaining. We saw how that affected Moses, that affected the people. The Lord wipes them out. How oftentimes when we complain, it's because our hearts are filled with pride and we believe, God, I deserve something better than what you've given me. And here we see this, that this heart of uh, pride, it can affect Moses, we saw how it affected Moses in a small manner last week. But this week, it's going to affect Moses' own sister, his brother, the high priest of the entire nation of Israel. This is going to affect him. But let's read chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 3. It tells us that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, "Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also?" And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth. So we come to this interesting portion of scripture. We see that Miriam, she's the one that's in charge of this complaint department, right? She's the one that's in charge of it. She's leading the complaint. She's the manager of the complaint department. And Aaron, her brother, is sort of just along with her, along for the ride. She's complaining either about Moses' wife, whether it's her complexion, or whether it's where she's from. We know that nowhere in Scripture does the Lord forbid Israelites from marrying Ethiopians. He forbids them from marrying lots of other different countries and nationalities within this little time period, within the context of what's going on here. Some think that Zephora, the first woman that we see is Moses' wife, that she's passed away. And now Moses, he's remarried. We know Moses, he was really in shape no matter how old he was, right? He's like 120 when he passes away. And it says his eyes didn't grow dim. He was still super strong, right? Reminds me of uh, my dad or Bill Gallatin. You hear their age. You're like, what? You're how old, right? And that's kind of how Moses was. So he remarries possibly at uh, 81 years of age, somewhere around there. Something that it is Zephora, that she was originally from Ethiopia, but her dad Jethro would move to Midian. And that's why we would know him, that he was a Midian. But all of this is all to say that Miriam is attacking Moses' wife. So Miriam, she's Moses' sister. So Miriam is here and she's attacking her own sister-in-law. Has Miriam always been this contentious woman? Has she always been looking for a fight and causing contention in the family? Not at all. You can just write these down. In Exodus 15 verse 20, Miriam is called the prophetess. And she actually sings a song that is inspired by God himself. In Exodus chapter 2 verse 4 and 7, Miriam as a young girl was very special. She was brave enough to watch her little baby brother in that little basket go down the Nile River, right? She's there going through the reeds, following the basket. She's brave enough that when Pharaoh's daughter gets the basket, she approaches her, says, hey, do you need someone to help you with that baby? I know a Israelite woman that could nurse him and take care of him. So Miriam, she's been an amazing woman up until this point, but now She's complaining about her own brother. This brother that's in charge of over 2 million of God's people in the middle of the desert. Her little brother that she watched over in that basket has now been used by God to deliver his people from slavery. He's been used by God to take down the nation of Egypt. He's been used by God for countless miracles. However, here she's fighting and attacking her own brother. And sometimes we often get surprised when our own family comes against us and criticizes us in the midst of doing the work of the Lord. That anybody here? That only me, right? Yeah, a handful of us were like, man, when we weren't saved, we were complete jerks to our family, right? Now we're saved, and we're nice, and they're just mad that we're going to church on Sunday instead of brunch, right? What's going on here, right? I'm getting all these curse words on the family chat. They started a new family chat without me. What's going What's going on here, right? And we get surprised at these things, but it's kind of biblical. To have God's people be criticized by their own family when they're doing things for the Lord, right? In Matthew 13, verse 57, it tells us, So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. Again, oftentimes the people we mistreat most, it's our own family members that people we're comfortable with. We know Jesus' own mother and his own family members, they gave him a hard time. Uh, Abel, he was a pretty stellar young man and yet his own brother had lots of problems with him. Cain ends up even killing Abel. And all Abel is doing is sacrificing to the Lord. Isaac's half-brother at a young age, Ishmael, was mocking him. Jacob and Esau's relationship was constantly filled with difficulty. Jacob's father-in-law tricks him and manipulates him over and over and over again. Joseph's own brothers, his own father, hated on him, hated on his dreams, would sort of belittle him. David's father-in-law tried to kill him several times. So again, not all of these are directly linked to people doing the work of the Lord. But I think we should be surprised less and less when our own family members attack us or mock us, especially when we are in the midst of serving the Lord. We can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter reminds us that we should not be surprised at these things. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy." Now we know Peter, he's writing to the church as they're going through difficulty, as Nero is persecuting them, and all sorts of things like that. However, we do go through trials. And we know that God allows us to go through trials to sharpen us, to mature us, and to grow us. And oftentimes those trials come through the people closest to us. Because if some random stranger on the street says mean things about you, Hopefully you're mature enough to not really care. It's some stranger on the street, right? But now when our own family members say things about us, our own friends, people that we love, people that we care about, it can really affect us. So may we just know, hey, you're going to go through difficulty like this. If Moses went through it, if David went through it, if Jesus went through it, again, be prepared. We will go through it as well. We go back to verse 2 in Numbers 12, and Miriam started off with complaining about her sister-in-law, but here we see the real reason why she's complaining, right? It's like when you get in a huge argument with your spouse, and it's about the refrigerator being opened, or the soap you bought at the supermarket, right? And then you realize that's not why we're fighting. We're fighting about something that happened last week, right, or last month. This is just the little terry on top that led through to the breakthrough. In verse 2, it says, So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So this shows us Miriam's real problem was with the level of position that Moses had. She believed she was entitled to the same level of leadership as Moses did. She had some self-interest. She wanted to raise herself up and Aaron's along for the ride as oftentimes people do when they're, hey, we're going to raise ourselves up. Yeah, let's jump on that train, right? Yeah, I'm mad at Moses too. I could be your VP. Yeah, I'm mad at Moses too, right? That happens within us all the time. Who does Moses think he is? Does he have some type of monopoly on God? I was a prophetess too, right? Hey, Moses, would he be here? I could have tipped that basket over in the water. He would have been here, right, if it wasn't for me. And this is affecting her pride. I should be leading along with Aaron and Moses. This should be the three of us leading. And it's Miriam and Aaron who were saying that Moses was filled with pride, when indeed, they're the ones filled with pride, right? David Guzik says, Miriam and Aaron, as often is the case, were accusing Moses of the very same sin, motivating them to make this accusation. We always have to be careful with that. Always have to look in the mirror. When we're ready to accuse someone and attack them, we need to look in the mirror and say, Man, am I accusing them of the very reason why I'm accusing them, right? What settled in my heart, my reason for coming up to them, is it really the Lord? Is it really trying to win a brother over, a sister over? Or is this just sin and pride settling in my heart? Proverbs 13 verse 10 tells us, by pride comes nothing but strife. By pride comes nothing but strife. Luke 14 verse 11 Jesus says for whoever exalts himself will be humbled but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4 6 says the same thing that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Let's turn to 1st Peter chapter 5 verse 5. 1st Peter chapter 5 verse 5. Peter he mentions the same difficulties with humility and pride here, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Let's run over to Galatians chapter 5. And I think many of us, we have the fruit of the Spirit memorized. But in Galatians chapter 5, it also tells us about the works of the flesh or the fruit of the flesh, right? And here we see an interesting one that I don't think gets enough press or enough warning as it should. There in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19 here, it gives us this list. It tells us now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. And now, what's the next one? Selfish ambition. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a warning to us that if we are in the ministry for selfish ambition, Galatians 5.21 makes it clear that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here, what leaks out of the heart of Miriam, it's selfish ambition. She has ambition for the place that Moses has, and now she's attacking him. She's speaking lies about him. And only strife comes when we allow pride and selfish ambition to rule our hearts, whether it's at the job place, whether it's in our own families, Right? If we're going at things for our own selfish ambition, only dangerous things come. Only strife and difficulty come. James, he speaks to the same end here. In verse 13 of James chapter 3, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not lie and boast against the truth. Again, we have to be careful that we don't have bitter envy, self-seeking, selfish ambition laying within our hearts because it will come up. James continues in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, right? Selfish ambition usually is not willing to yield. Pride usually is not willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Again, we have to be careful. Whenever we're led by selfish ambition, I can't wait to become the head, uh, right, the head usher, the head in parking lot because I'm going to go up the ladder of Calvary Chapel, Miami. There's no ladder in Calvary Chapel, Miami, right? But that can affect our hearts. We need to be careful with that. Sometimes the question comes up, right? Can God call only one man to lead his people? Would God not speak to a collective group of people to lead his people? However, if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and the church age, that's kind of God's M.O. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Every now and then we hear some simpleton or other talking against a one-man ministry. When it has been a one-man ministry from the commencement of the world to present day. And whenever you try to have any other form of ministry and doing it thoroughly and heartedly and independently and bravely in the sight of God, you soon run upon quicksand. Again, it's just the way God sort of does things. Moses, one man. Joshua, one man. David, Daniel, James, Peter, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and even our Lord and Savior. Jesus, one man ministry. He was the leader. It wasn't him and the disciples. He didn't sit down with all 12 of them. All right, guys, what's the plan here, right? What are we going to do? He said, no, you follow me. I'm the Lord. You're the disciples here. Now, a man of God, and we see in these men, a man of God, a wise leader, will surround himself with godly men. Moses in the last chapter, what did he do? He gathered 70 men with him to help carry the load of what was going on here. David and King Saul, we never see him write about his cabinet. But David, he tells us every single man in his cabinet and what they were doing there. Peter, Paul, Timothy, Titus, all of these men were men who were in authority because they were men under authority. So it's not like the the man of God, the leader of God is alone on an island. It's just him and the Lord. We've spoken about that. Each of us, we have the Spirit of God inside of us. But the Lord gives each church body its own organs, its own body parts. And thank God I don't see any of you with two heads, right? It'd be kind of weird. It'd be kind of crazy. But that's the way God does things. We went through it in 1 Timothy on Monday night with the young adults. It's not the type of church government that makes a church safe or not. It's the quality and the caliber of the men within the church government that makes a church safe or not. It's all about the quality and the caliber of the men. Are they really about God? Do they have a relationship with the Lord? Are they seeking God? Are they in the ministry for selfish ambition? It's going to fall apart. Are they in the ministry to bless the Lord, to follow him, to serve his people? The Lord's going to bless it. We continue, end of verse 2 and 3, it tells us, And the Lord heard it, right? God hears their complaints. And now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. I always laugh at this verse, right? Why do I laugh at this verse? Who's the author of the book of Numbers, right? It's Moses, right? God, did you allow a guy to really write that he's the most humble man in all the earth, right? Is this really what's going on? But before we get there, right? At the end of verse 2, it says, the Lord heard it. So we see, we know God sees and hears everything. Yeah, whenever we see or hear someone saying something mean about us, what's the first question that comes to mind? God, do you see what they're saying about me, right? God, are are you hearing what they're saying? And we're going to see the first time Moses speaks in this whole chapter, it's when he's praying for mercy upon his sister. Moses does not open his mouth once here. Moses steps back and allows God to fight for him. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. Take care of your character and God will take care of your reputation, You see, oftentimes when people are consumed with protecting their reputation, they don't have a very good one. Oftentimes when people are consumed with protecting their reputation and going around putting out every little fire, oftentimes it's because they don't have a good reputation to begin with. God's people, we should be able to sit back and our character, the fruit of our life, will be able to show others who we truly are. Another thing that we need to be aware of here is if Moses, right? We know God's word. It's inspired by God. It's the very breath of God. And if Moses is the most humble, if Moses is the meekest man in all the world, and here he's being accused of the exact opposite of humility or meekness, which is pride, let us not be surprised when the same happens to us. I've learned to sort of just laugh at it sometimes, right? I laugh at it. Sometimes I sit there and I smile. and I'm like, all right, Lord, you do what you want to do here. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't take it personally. The more you're in ministry, the more you cannot take things personally, right? It's been said, uh, a man that wants to be used by God, they have to have the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the hide of a rhinoceros, right? Got to have thick skin. You can't be easily swayed by what people say or the mean things they say about you. But again, this must have been pretty awkward for Moses to write this down, right? God tells him, Moses, write down, you're the meekest man in all the earth. God, I can't write that down, right? What are you you talking about, right? Moses, write that down. I'm telling you what to say, right? Some people think Joshua, he fills this in after Moses passes away. And that's why it's here in parentheses. But that word humble here, it means meek which means power under control. It also speaks of someone who is lowly. And we know that Jesus, he says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Speaking of his humility, he's low. That's who Christ is. That's who we should be. Proverbs 3 verse 34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. If you really want the goodness of God, you want the great and incredible blessings of God, it's not about naming it and claiming it. It's not about writing it down. It's about being more and more humble, being more and more lowly. Proverbs 16 verse 19, it tells us, Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Again, what's the company that you keep? The people around you, are they all sort of humble and lowly and meek? They know they're really not that big of a deal, right? Or are the people around you always filled with pride? Adam Clark, he says, in the he believes the, the word, the meaning here, is that Moses was the most depressed or afflicted man in all the land. And that kind of connects with who Jesus is. Jesus was afflicted beyond what any other man could go through And he says, hey, I am meek and lowly in heart. Was Moses always humble, meek, and lowly? No. Right? When he first realized what was happening to the people of God, he thought, I'm going to be their savior, right? So he kills one man. He thought he'd kill one Egyptian at a time. Right? It'd take forever, but he was going to save the people of Israel. It took Moses 40 years to learn that he was something. To then spend 40 years in the desert to, learn, to unlearn, right? And now learn that he was a nothing so that he could be used by God. And when you speak with mighty men of God like this, it's always such a blessing. Lots of people, they, they speak of, um, man, I'm blanking out on his name, right? Uh, Billy Graham, and they would always say just how humble he was how lowly he was, how a regular guy he was, right? A lot of people talk about Chuck Smith and how he drove a used Cadillac, right? That was the car that he drove, nothing special. He just was a lowly man, gentleman. Uh, you talk with Bill Gallatin, you talk with Tony Fauzion, and they're just even keel guys. They like to come, sit, receive. Uh, I love talking with Joe Foge at the end of a conference. I'll thank him. Hey, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for putting this all together. He goes, are you going to thank someone for eating apple pie? Right? I love doing this. I love being here. Right? And talking with these mighty men of God that are humble and lowly. Uh, realizing it's nothing special about them, but it's all the Lord. There in verse 4, it says, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Right? I, can't, I can't help but think of a dad with three little kids, right? I've been there done that right I just look at all three of them and I go like this and they all start right they all start coming with their with their head down so God he pulls them into his office right they get called into their dad's room they get called into the principal's office the Lord he heard everything he's seen what's going on verse five then the Lord he came down in the pillar of cloud he stood there in the door of the tabernacle and he calls Aaron and Miriam right hey you two you come up forward first right and now they both come forward and then he said Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of God. Earlier, Miriam was arguing, what's so special about Moses? We are just as special as he is, and God is the one answering Miriam and telling her and Aaron exactly why Moses is so special. Moses was special because of the very deep, intimate, and close relationship he had with God. This is what made Moses so special, God says, hey, most prophets, I speak to them in dreams and in visions. But Moses, I speak to him face to face like friends do. Now again, this is a word play. We know God's word tells us that no man has seen God face to face because he'll die. But here he says, hey, I speak to him and he sees the form of God. Right? He sees like a representation of who God is. We know that when God hides him in the cleft of the rock, he sort of sees the back of God's robe passing by there. Moses had such a special and intimate relationship with God. And I pray and I hope that each of us, we long for that. We're asking God, how can I have this type of relationship? God, how can I spend more time with you so that I could be that friend to you? So I could speak to you like a best friend would. Lord, how can you do that in me? And for whatever reason, Matthew chapter 5 popped into mind. And how Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, that we'd be Like Moses, we'd be those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who mourn, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. May we be those who are merciful and may we be pure in heart that we would see God. God continues in his defense of Moses and God asks Miriam and Aaron, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And I love this. I love how God's title for Moses wasn't the ruler of Israel, right? Why have you spoken ill of the ruler of Israel? God doesn't say, why have you spoken wrongly of the king of Israel? No. He says, why have you spoken against my servant Moses? And again, I believe Moses knew who he was to God, and that's why he was so meek and humble. He realized he was nothing but a slave. That's that word ebed. It's the word in the Greek doulos. He realized he was nothing but a slave to God. And the more we realize that, the more we're connected with that, the more that God can use us. Do we, now we come to this and we ask ourselves, right? Do God's leaders live in a place where they are above questioning? Not at all. Absolutely not. A few chapters back, Jethro questions Moses and there was an important breakthrough in Moses and in his style of leadership. It was important and it affected Moses and it helped the nation of Israel. We know that David, he was questioned by Nathan. He was questioned by Joab, his right-hand man. He was questioned by many men around him. Peter, he was questioned by Paul, questioned in front of the whole entire church there. So men of God, we need to be more than open to being questioned by people, but we also need to be able to hold the line and not allow, as David Guzik would put, leaders in the house of God must make themselves accountable and open to criticism and questioning. But need not make themselves quiet targets for those whose criticism is petty, false, and self-motivated. Again, there's a fine line there where we need to stay humble. But we're not the doormat for everybody that has a problem or has some self-motivated desire and ambition to grow within a church or wherever your workplace is. There's a line there, open to questioning, open to criticism, but not open to be everyone's doormat or piñata. Verse 9, it tells us, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous. She's now white as snow than Aaron, right? He's the high priest. He's the one that would have to judge people, examine if they're leprous or not. He turns towards Miriam and there she was a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, oh my Lord, right? All of a sudden now, big brother calls Moses Lord, right? Oh my Lord, right? Please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when she comes out of his mother's womb. This reveals to us that Miriam, she was in bad shape, right? She was in bad shape. She looked shriveled up. She looked half dead, right? Some babies come out the womb, and you say, they're so cute. Look at them. Some other babies come out the womb, right? I'll never forget that teaching from Pastor It's a baby, right? You don't know what else to say, right? It's a baby. So here Aaron is saying, man, you got to save our sister. She's shriveled up. She looks terrible. You got to save her, right? What does Moses do? Aaron, let me pray about this one, right? Let me take a couple days. Let me fast. No, right away. The heart of Moses, the true man of meekness and humility. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. He doesn't say, she's getting hers, right? Hey, who's prideful now? He doesn't do anything like that. He stands back and right away he cries out to the Lord saying, please heal her. Oh, God, I pray. Again, this is the first time Moses opens his mouth to his accusers. And because the Lord is dealing with Aaron and Miriam publicly, we have to believe here that they have been spreading these lies publicly. And that's why God deals with them publicly. He doesn't deal with them privately. Everyone is going to see Miriam and how out of shape she is. But this is the first time Moses opens his mouth. Again, we need to be Christ-like. And Isaiah 53 verse 7, it tells us, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Every time someone says something mean to you, you don't have to tell everybody in the world. You can keep it to yourself. You can wrestle with the Lord about it because now if that other brother or sister comes to you and says, Man, I'm sorry. I was in the flesh. I jacked up. I had a terrible day. Could you please forgive me? Are you going to now tell all the people you gossip to, hey, that person came to me, they asked for forgiveness, they were forthright, they were having a bad day? Again, we need to be able to hold things inside and wrestle with the Lord about them. This is the first time Moses opens his mouth. Then verse 14, the Lord says to Moses, again we see how serious this was to God. He says, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Right? Is God saying to spit in her face? Not at all, right? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days and afterwards she may be received again. Well, God is telling Moses, if you remember those fun chapters in Leviticus about bodily fluids and all that stuff, Right? God is saying, hey, if she even got some spit on her, she would be unclean and would have to wait outside for seven days. She's sinned. Let her deal with the consequences of her sin. Here's another topic we don't like that often, right, in Christianity. Oftentimes we need to deal with the consequences of our sin. Just because we say we're sorry, just because we're repentant, does not mean that God all of a sudden wipes away the consequences right away. Oftentimes, he leaves them there so that we can be reminded of what we've done. Again, David, he sinned. God didn't just wipe away all of the consequences of David. He allowed David to go through some of those consequences. We have to be careful, especially the parents here. Just because our kids say sorry, right? someone does something, oh, I'm sorry, okay, it's all gone. No, sometimes we need to allow people to taste of the consequences, God, he always minimizes those consequences, but God allows us to taste of those consequences. We see it's not terribly bad. In verse 15, it says, so Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, right? She's put on timeout for seven days, if you would, right? And the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. It's not like they left her. It's not like the spirit of the God pulled up and started moving away. And Miriam's by herself in the desert for seven days. No, she just has to wait outside the camp till the Lord deals with her heart for those seven days. And afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now we come to chapter 13. It says, now the, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send me to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send the man Everyone a leader among them. If you're quick, you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we see that this was not God's original plan here. God had a different plan, but because of the weakness of these people, some people think perhaps Moses Dealing with the situation with his brother and sister didn't want to strong-arm the people or tell them, you do what I tell you to do, right? That he took a softer approach. And that's why now they're having to deal with sending men to go out and spy out the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8, it says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and their descendants after them. You see, God's heart, God's desire is that they would just go in and take it by faith. This was a promise that God had given to them since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. This has been a promise for way over 400 years. That was God's desire. But because of the fear in their heart, you go to chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. Now in verse 20, it says, And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear nor be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. The plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us and they brought back word to us saying it is a good land which the Lord our God is giving to us. You see the promised land we know because of the book of Hebrews it's not referring to heaven. It's referring to promises that God has given us because to enter into the promised land they enter into the promised land. Do they have rest there? Do they have relaxation there? Is there no more crying, no more tears? No, there's war after war after war. I don't know about your heaven, but the heaven in the Bible, right? It doesn't say there's any more war for us to be going through. A couple battles left, but God, Jesus just speaks, and it's all done, right? The promised land are promises that God has set for us. And that's why we need to go to those promises by faith wish we had time to go through all of Hebrews, but it warned us to not allow unbelief to creep into our hearts because then we won't taste of those promises. Just like many of the nation of Israel, this whole generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, they did not taste of the promises that God had for them. God already searched out the land. God told them that it was a good land, that it would be a sweet land. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 8, I'll just read these to you. It says, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Did God need someone to search out the land to tell them if it was good or not? No, He knew that it was good. This was the fear within the hearts of the people. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 5, here once again, it says, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land. This is a promise of God. Hey, I'm going to bring you into this land, into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in the month. Again, God already knew what the land was like. He already knew what the promised land was like. And there's sometimes within our lives that searching out the land, there's lots of wisdom there. There's wisdom in that, right? If you're going to buy a new house, hopefully you go and you check it out, right? If it's good or not. If you're wise, you wait, you send all the people that you can to look at everything the the foundation, the roof you spend as much time as you can searching out and spying out the house to see if it's good or not, not actually spying right do it do it uh, do it according to the law, right don't get arrested for trespassing or anything like that but there's wisdom in that when someone goes to become a missionary, right sometimes we we spiritualize things a little bit more than we should, right? Sometimes we spin the globe around and we point our finger on somewhere, and we're like, that's exactly where I'm going. It's Antarctica. That's it. I'm selling everything and I'm going to Antarctica to become a missionary, right? And you get there and there's nothing, right? Which Levi was here to tell me which animals live in Antarctica, right? But sometimes there's a lot of wisdom. You wanna be a missionary? Is there anyone there that you can connect with? Is there a good church there? Are there God people there that you can connect with? And then from there, Go and preach the gospel. Uh, Listening to Joe, he tells me, hey, if you want to go be a missionary, go to that place, spend a month there, spend two months there, then come back and pray about it and see if that's where the Lord is leading you. But sometimes, especially with the promises of God, we just need to be obedient. Because when we start searching, when we start spying, when we start creating our own list of pros and cons, really what we're facing is obedience to God versus our fears of obeying the Lord. Right? That makes sense? Sometimes God has this promise for us. I want you to leave this. I want you to leave that. You have power over this sin. You don't have to do this anymore. This doesn't have to be your identity. And instead of just being obedient to God and God's word, God, I'm going to do that, we sit back and we start rationalizing things. We start going to the world. Hey, Google, what do you have to say about this, right? We start spying out the land. And instead of just being obedient to God and the blessings, the promises that God has for us, we start spying out the land, and now we have a list of our fears that keep us back from being obedient To the word of God. Verse three, it says So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. And these were the names from the tribe of Reuben, right? You could laugh at me saying, trying to pronounce some of these names right. Shemua, the son of Zachor. Poor guy, right? Big, big guy. Verse 5. And from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, right? Some of us, we remember Caleb, the son of Jephunel. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Hosea, it means salvation. Later on, this guy, his name, he would always be called Joshua, right? yah It's pretty cool because Hoshea means salvation. yah means Yahweh is salvation. David Guzik, he paints this little funny picture, right? He says, we can even imagine when Moses first met Joshua, he asked him, hey, what's your name? And he says, hey, I'm Hoshea, right? I'm salvation. Joshua would reply. But Moses would smile and reply, yah which means Yahweh is salvation. Joshua became his name, and we know that Jesus' true name is the same thing. Yahweh is salvation. And the only way we can get to the promises that God has given us is in and through Jesus Christ. We can't do it by the law. We can't do it by religion. We can't be, do it by afflicting ourselves. It's only in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh. Gadi, the son of Sushi, right? Can we get Sushi after this? Verse 12, from the tribe of Dan, Amuel, the son of uh, Gemali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabai, the son of Vasi, from the tribe of Gad, Jeuel, the son of Machi. Go play Machi Coro after this. Verse 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called, right, Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Moses already knew what the land was like, right? Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Again, it's interesting what Moses asks them to spy out and verify. Some of these things he already knew. He knew what the land was like. God said it was amazing, the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey, speaking of how great and incredible the land would be. But then, sort of the same thing as Miriam, right? The second question is the real question. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Hey, we know the land is good, but how hard is the battle going to be to realize these promises that God has set for me? How hard is it going to really be like? Whether the land is good or bad, we know that. Now it's back to the second thing. Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or are they strongholds? Again, we need to realize when God gives us these promises that we are overcomers, that we are free from sin, that we are who God says we are. Just have to go at it by faith. Don't now sit back. How hard is this going to be? What's the cost? Was this? Was that? Third man, be obedient. Go by faith. Follow the Lord and seek Him. Verse twenty-one. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath, and they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. These are these giants of the land. They're all there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. We don't know why Moses wants to tell us this, but verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs and the place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So it tells us they see giants. They see see the enemy. The enemy is big. The enemy is great. It's going to be difficult. But the land, there's no doubt it's good. The land is so good that one cluster of grapes, they had to put a staff or a pole in between it. Maybe some of you have seen this picture painted or uh, what is it? It's olive tree wood in Israel and they make these little carvings out of it. And it's these two men and the grapes are so heavy. One cluster of grapes is so heavy, it's so big that they need two men carrying it like if it was... right a lechon for Christmas Eve, right? That's basically how they're having to carry how big the grapes are of the land, right? Grapes the size of a small watermelon or a cantaloupe. This is the size of the grapes. They bring pomegranates. They bring figs. The land is great. The land is incredible. But now we see how easily someone's discouraging words can sort of affect our hearts and destroy our mindset and what God has told us to do. Verse 26, it says, Now they departed, and they came back to Moses and Aaron, and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and now they showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So here, the crowd starts getting restless, right? Fear starts gripping the hearts. Wow, look at these, look at these grapes, right? Don't knock me out throwing a grape at me, right? It's incredible. It's great. But there's giants in the land. Their cities are fortified. They're huge. They're in the land of the south. They're in the east. They're in the mountains. They're on the sea. They're everywhere. And fear starts gripping their hearts. And then verse 30, it tells us, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. We know Caleb, he's not at his elder age at the end of this with Joshua, but Caleb is one of those men in his 40s and 50s, and he's seen the work of the Lord before. He quiets them all down. he says, "Hey guys, we can do this. We know who God is. God calls us to be overcomers. Those who inherit the kingdom of God are overcomers. We can do this. We can get over this sin. We can get over this culture. We can be who God has called us to be. We can apprehend the reason we were apprehended. We can do this. And it's important to have men and women like this in your life to quiet you down, to quiet all the noise, to quiet all the fear, to quiet all the depressions, and tell you, hey, quiet down. We are able to do this because of who the Lord God is. Right? Sometimes that's why it's so great to go on missions trips, right? Uh, we were on this one missions trip and uh, we were up in New Jersey. This is after one of the hurricanes has absolutely decimated the land and here in this little slit in New Jersey, all the wind would pour in like a funnel through there. So at night you'd get these 40 mile an hour winds, 50 mile an hour winds, 60 mile an hour winds. And I was up there with Casas and we're literally building a new church for the people, right? And it's 20 degrees plus 60 mile an hour gusts, right? So it's freezing. And we're out there trying to hammer in these huge, and they're called 16 uh, penny nails, into these huge 6 by 12 by 24, these huge planks of wood, right? And I'm thinking, I can't do this, right? We can't do this. We could do it, right? Just get on with it. Keep going. Don't stop. We can do this. And we need men and women in our lives that when we think, hey, I can't do this, I'm going to die. I can't make it. I can't do this. You need men and women around you, seasoned men and women of God that say, we could do this. We've been through this before. We've been through that before. Hey, God, he healed the bitter waters already. God, don't you remember? There's a pillar of fire out there. We could do this, man. It rains bread every morning. We can do this. God says we could do this. We need men and women like that in our lives. And we should be, if we're growing, if we're maturing in the Lord, we shouldn't be the ones calling alarms and freaking everybody out. We should be the ones encouraging other people as well. Hey, you can do this. We can do this. God has called us to be an overcomer. You can do it. That's who we need to be. Uh, Throughout the daily reading, it's been great to read about the mighty men of valor and also reading in the book of Acts, right? Old Testament and New Testament. Our battle, it's not with swords anymore. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Stephen, he's facing the very same men who dragged Jesus to prison. He's facing the very same men that crucified Jesus, and he has no fear. He gives them the full gospel and says, you're the ones That crucified him and didn't listen to the Lord. And again, just this week, this is what the Lord's been telling me. God needs more spiritual warriors and less spiritual wusses. That's just what God's been telling me this week. Maybe not you guys, right? But that's what he's telling me. Oftentimes, God says, hey, this is what I have for you. And we just start going off on all the reasons it's not going to work. All the reasons why the fear, the culture, the identity, my family, the this, the that, it's just not going to work. We need to be those warriors like David, a man after God's own heart, that when the whole entire army of Israel, the whole church is afraid to be obedient to God's word, you stand up and say, This man is defying our Lord. Why should we let him stand? And that's who we need to be in this day and age. They're mocking you. They're mocking your stance on life. They're mocking your stance on babies. They're mocking your stance on marriage. Let them mock. We serve the Lord our God. We need to be obedient to him. We need to stop wanting the culture to like us and be consumed with God. Are we a blessing to you? Lord, are we honoring you? God, are we following you? We need that. This always makes me think of the rich young ruler. God, right? Jesus says, come and follow me. Sell these things and come and follow me. He doesn't look at the promise. He doesn't look at the opportunity he has. He looks at what is it going to cost him. And it says he went away sorrowfully. He went away in fear. Next time you're faced with making a decision based upon something you really sense God is calling you to, Don't just think of what it's going to cost, but think of what it may cost you if you're disobedient to the Lord right now. Because oftentimes people don't think about that. People don't think about what if God is asking me to do this and I'm disobedient to him right now. That's to the parents here, the young men here, the young women here, the grandparents. God is calling you to do something. Yeah, there's all this fear that might creep in, but Lord, what if I disobey you right now? What is this going to cost me? How far is this going to set me back? Because to him who knows, right, to do right, to him that knows what he should be doing to do good, and he doesn't do it, it is a sin to him. So don't send spies out to try to rationalize things or, oh, this is too hard. No, just be obedient to the Lord. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against these people. They are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land. These men were fearful and now they give a bad report. They give a false report of what's happened. Again, we need to be careful with that. Just because we have a majority of people telling us one thing does not necessarily mean that that's the voice of the Lord. You and I, we should know the voice of the Lord. And what he's speaking to us, verse 32, what's their report? The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. We haven't seen that anywhere here, right? And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Again, we have to be so careful with this. We've already read of the promises of God. Hey, one of you is going to put the flight, right, 10 or 20. Ten of you is going to put the flight, 100. And 100 of you are going to put the flight, thousands of them. This is what they should have held on to, the promises of God. But instead they allowed the fear to grip them and grab a hold of their heart. There's no wonder why God would tell Gideon, Hey, if there's any man that's fearful to go to war, send him back home. Again, we need to be bold. We need to follow the Lord. We need to walk in faith. All of this to say, where should we be at? We need to be careful if false and self-ambition creeps into our heart. Pride, it's only going to lead to more and more problems. It's only going to lead to strife. What's the next thing? Be obedient to God's word. We don't get audible promises from God as Moses does, right? Right? Very rarely, even great men of God, they'll say, maybe, maybe one time in my life do I think I heard the audible voice of the Lord. But we have promises of God in Scripture. We don't need to send out spies whether we could be obedient to God or not, right? God tells us to do it. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Let's be obedient to Him and the promises He's laid before us.